Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Back to getting two episodes out two weeks in a row. That makes me very happy. I hope it makes you happy, too. Um, the feedback I got from the last episode where we added an appendix, um, my feedback, well, what I'm choosing to believe is the feedback from that is everyone wants me to talk for a lot longer, like way longer. So I will be doing um, now two-hour episodes um, in order to um, just give you more and more content. No, I'm just kidding. I do appreciate those of you, the feedback that uh, a little extra was uh, not difficult to listen to, but was enjoyable. So appreciate that. We actually are probably going to have another appendix today. That does not uh, necessarily make it required listening, but uh, at the same time, it's there if you want it. So we'll talk about that more later. Uh, but today we are going to be jumping in to talk more about the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we've been talking about. Some stories about Jesus. This uh, We're talking about some specific things that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. What's the Sermon on the Mount, you might ask? Well, Jesus gave a sermon and it was on a mount. So there you go. But it is uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is typically what we think of as the Sermon on the Mount. And we did chapter 5 last time chapter six this time, this is going to cover a variety of topics, though they're going to really have very similar uh, practices or applications. So we'll kind of talk about that. We're also going to jump into earthly versus heavenly values slash treasures and anxiety, which no one deals with that, right? Nobody deals with anxiety, I'm pretty sure, right? Not, we all do. So we're going to jump in. We're going to talk about those things today. Um, again, we're going to be in Matthew 6. We'll start with verses 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so the first topic we're going to tackle is this one's about giving. This one is about giving. Uh, and we are told, um, and this is not just for giving, but this is even, it says practicing righteousness, right? And it's going to specifically play out in giving in this uh, paragraph. Uh, we are not meant to do works of righteousness with the desire to be seen doing it. Okay, so that's kind of the principle and that's the application that's going to go into these. But uh, that's that's what we're talking about, that we are not to do things that are good, do things that are righteous, such as giving for the purpose of being seen by others. Okay, so this is what Jesus says is the deal. He says that those who practice righteousness and get attention for it, they've already received their reward. Okay, so if, if that's the purpose for which we are going to do something like giving for doing it so that. I love this idea of sounding the trumpet, like people are going to follow you to the the synagogue to put your thing in there, and maybe that happened. I don't know. But he says those who have gotten that positive attention from that, they've already received their reward. Basically, you don't get any you don't get any kingdom of heaven points for giving out of a desire to be seen by people. It's kind of like if you want to be seen by people, your reward is people. Okay, so whatever praise they got they gave you, you have received your reward if that is the heart with which you do it. But instead, he says. If your giving's in secret, then the father who sees in secret will reward you. So it's kind of this, like, it's kind of like a matchup. If you're doing it for people, your reward is going to be from people. If we're doing things under the Lord, our reward is going to be from the Lord. Of course, with the clear implication that that second one, that we do things for the Lord, be rewarded by the Lord, is the one that we want to follow, right? 
and I love this, that we're told instead of doing things to be seen by others, and, and again, in this paragraph, giving, we are to be so secretive that our left hand wouldn't even know what our right hand is doing. Now, that's, of course, a rhetorical statement, um, and it, it's meant to show how little acclaim we should seek. And that's really what the issue is here. It's not about, um, it's not about the amounts. Um, it's not here about uh, the act of giving itself. It's really the heart that goes into all works of righteousness and in this instance, giving. So verse one, if we're doing it in order to be seen by them or that we may be praised by others, verse two, um, it's, it's, and this is not meant to say that if somebody finds out that you were giving, that it's no longer good, right? The emphasis is in order. These are like result statements. I'm doing this so that the result will be, I will be seen so that the result will be, I will be praised by others. We're looking for a cause effect there that my giving would cause people to praise me, cause people to see me. That's the heart that is bad. Not that somebody should find out that you are giving because guess what? If you give to a person, they are going to find out. And if they don't find out, then you are really sneaky and they maybe don't ask nearly enough questions, right? If you wanted to help somebody fix a refrigerator, you wanted to pay for that, or you wanted to buy somebody's meal, you know, I'm just thinking of other things. Eventually somebody's going to, if they're paying any sort of attention, they're going to know that you gave, or at least that somebody gave. You can sneak some money in a mailbox. Again, people should probably ask more questions if they find money in their mailbox. But it's not really about it, how many people see you doing it. It's the heart posture. Am I doing this so that people will see me? Or am I doing it as unto the Lord? I feel called by the Lord to do this. I'm doing this for his pleasure, not for the praise or acclaim I might get from others. So then we see that this same kind of uh, this same kind of principle, this same way of operating should also apply to prayer, verses five through eight. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for the, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, so now again, we're applying this principle to prayer. Um, so thinking, okay, what is the purpose of our prayer? What are we doing in prayer? And what is our heart posture? Okay, our prayer life is not meant to be used to show that we are pious. Instead, a vibrant prayer life is based in practicing regular time alone with God. So similar, again, for those who give to those who give for praise, that's what they get. Their, their reward is the praise they get from people. And if you have ever been praised by someone who didn't really know anything about you, you know how maybe it feels good for a time, but it's fleeting, right? God is not pleased by a prayer life that is seeking attention. I think this raises a natural question then. It says, go into your closet, right? Should Is there a place for corporate prayer or aka praying in front of other people? Is there a place for that? Or is that just something that we are just all doing totally wrong? Um, I would say this, the answer, short answer, there is, yes, there is a place for corporate prayer aka praying in front of other people, praying as a congregation, as a small group, as a family, etc. Here are some examples that we see in scripture. I don't just think that because I think that. Uh, I think we see good examples in scripture. I'm just going to give one each from Old Testament and New Testament. There are more than this. 
um, or I guess really two books, but multiple instances. So in the book of Ezra, which follows the people's return from exile, um, there is a corporate prayer. The nature of those prayers is for them to repent uh, of what they'd been doing, to ask for forgiveness, and to confess their sins. Okay, that was primarily, and I'm not saying that those are the only reasons that we should pray. We're going to see more examples in the New Testament. That really has a lot to do with where they were in that particular time. Those, that was the nature of the prayer that they were offering, right? Because they were returning from exile and that desire to repent, the need for forgiveness, the need to confess were all rooted in the fact that they had lived a life that the nation of Israel, specifically the Southern Kingdom Judah here, uh, had lived uh, in a way that led to their exile because God, they were not following God's way. Anyways, you can go back and listen to some old uh, exile uh, Bible breakdowns if you're curious about that. But we also see in Acts, which of course Acts is uh, short for Acts of the Apostles. It follows the course of the early church. Okay, so we look at the early church and we're like, okay, that's the first church that existed, um, right? Post Jesus ascension. So it's like, okay, if we see some stuff about what a church is doing in the Bible, yeah, we should we should think pretty strongly about what they're doing, right? So um, there's a few instances in Acts that I pull out um, that they uh, there was corporate prayer in Acts two. Uh, there's kind of this generic that they committed themselves to the apostles teaching and to prayer okay so that's talking about the church so it has this idea of like a corporate idea or of a corporate kind of prayer that they're doing uh in chapter four they pray for boldness uh, the church is praying for boldness and in chapter 12 when peter had been imprisoned the church gathered in a house and they prayed for peter Okay, so these are all instances in which people did not go into their closets and pray by themselves. Okay, this is these are examples of corporate prayer. So again, I think the answer is yes, there is a place for corporate prayer. Uh, here's the deal. Again, it's not for attention for others. So we're not praying in a crowd so that people will really like the way we, we pray. And, and this kind of goes along with a, a little bit of a maybe kind of pulling out an application that Paul's talking about with worship services in first Corinthians, it's for the building up of the church, capital C church. Okay. So global church, not just our individual church body, but all people who believe in Jesus. And oftentimes that plays out in a local church, but that's the goal. If we're praying together, the goal is that our a prayer that is uh, heard by others is meant for the mutual building up of the church for me to build you up for you to build me up, not in ourselves, but in Christ. Okay, not to promote someone's holiness, impress somebody, a corporate calling out to God. I think of it also like corporate worship, right? We sing songs together. We all sing the same songs and worship to God. There's a significance when we all together call out to God for us to pray something like for Peter's release to say, Father, we pray that Peter would be released for, from prison for the other people in the group to say, amen, we we agree with that. God, we are all asking this of you. There's a goodness in that. Now, again, it, it's not like we wanna be the prayer police and say, is that person praying for the right reasons, right? It's a, it's a time for us to check our own hearts if we're in a situation like that, um, to say, am I praying for the right reasons? Am I praying to mutually build up the, the, the body to pray to really petition God? Or am I hoping that people will really think I have a robust prayer life because I said a lot of really good words, right? That's, I think that's the check and balance we have to do in our own hearts. Um, again, it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to say, okay, this is a good corporate prayer. This is not. And again, I'm not saying we need to be the, the, the judge and jury on that or anything, 
but it's something more we need to check our own hearts. And, you know, if somebody's going to ask for that feedback too, like that's something you can give like, Hey, this is how I'm experiencing you in corporate prayer. Sometimes it feels like maybe you want us to just think your prayers are really beautiful. You know, there may be a place for that if you have a close relationship with somebody. So that's good. Okay. So we're supposed to pray, right? We're not supposed to pray for other people. We can pray corporately, but we, we need to do it with the, with the right intentions. Well, how in the world do we pray? Right. And is anybody else just wondering how we pray? Well, luckily, Luckily for us, serendipitously, neither of those words, it was actually planned before the foundations of the earth that Jesus gives us a model for prayer. So it's picking it back up in verse nine. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, so you may have heard this before. This may sound familiar. You can probably tell from the cadence in which I read it. That's uh, how I, I learned it as a kid. I was uh, fortunate to um, live in a family where I learned uh, passages from the Bible as a young kid. Uh, this is the Lord's Prayer. Okay, this is the prayer that the Lord, which who is Jesus, shared. Okay, that's why it's called the Lord's Prayer. This is what Jesus prayed. I actually read something I wasn't going to say this. I didn't put it in my notes, but here we go. I read something in uh, the commentary on Matthew I used here a little bit just to check a couple things that really the prayer that Jesus prays for all believers in John is really more like the Lord's prayer. This is more like a disciple's prayer that was shared by Jesus, right? This is the prayer we're supposed to be giving, right? He's modeling this for us. So this, this is a model prayer. This is instructional for us. This helps us understand the nature of prayer and some reasons why we should pray, some things we should say when we pray. Okay, so here's a few elements I'll pull out for us from that. One, praising God for who he is. Two, asking that God's will be done in our lives and our actions, that the ideals of the kingdom of God would come near to us here on earth. Okay, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Making requests. Ah, right. That's what we usually think of when we think of prayer. It's like, oh, we're asking God for something. That's in, that's in play. Absolutely. Asking for forgiveness with the implication that we also need to forgive others. Okay. It's not like a God forgive me because I've done so good at forgiving everyone else. Right. It's more of this implication like, hey, for, I'm asking for forgiveness and also recon the recognition that I need to be forgiving as well. And we'll, we'll touch on that. That's actually what's going to come to the appendix. And then a request for strength to endure temptation without sinning. Okay, that we know that temptation comes. We know temptation is not authored by God, though God allows us to be tempted. Guess who else allowed himself to be tempted? God in Jesus, right? Jesus allowed himself to be tempted and Jesus is God. Um, so temptation does come, but it's not rooted. It does not come from God. God does not tempt us, though he does allow temptation to occur in our lives, right? Temptation itself is not sin. If you are tempted to sin, that's why it's called tempted because you have the option then to either go forward or not go forward. So this request, lead us not into temptation, help us and deliver us from evil, help us not to give in to those temptations. Uh, and this is a really good list. Um, there's, it's not like there's nothing else we can pray other than things in this. Like there's no actual specific like thanking God, though I think that's an important thing that we should thank God for all that he's done for us, right? So this is not an exhaustive list, but it's good. Um, we could also, just repeat this prayer verbatim in times where maybe we aren't sure what we should pray or how we should pray. Worst comes to worst, we could just, we can pray this. If, if anything's going to show our heart posture toward God, 
to say, I'm not sure what to do. I just know that you're the one I need to come to say, I'm going to, I'm going to pray what you told me to pray. I don't, I can't think of a heart that is more aligned with what we should be to God than one who says, God, I don't know what I should pray to you. So I'm going to pray what you told me to. That That's a, like a, an utter dependence, an utter recognition of our, uh, our inability to do things on our own. So hey, I think, that, I think that's good. So in a time or a place where you're not sure what or how to pray, to pray this, to pray the Lord's prayer is a good way to go, right? Can't go wrong saying exactly what Jesus said we should say, right? Okay, so verses 14 and 15, I am skipping over those for the sake of time. Those will, uh, I'm planning to add those to the appendix after the episode. So after uh, the little out, outro music plays at the end, I will have that after. So at that point, you can say, no, I've had enough for today. Or you can be like, okay, I'll take a few more minutes. Just letting you know, this is only the second ever appendix on the Bible breakdown. So I've still got to explain it. But we will come back to those um, while we continue to go through uh, much some more um, important stuff. I'm not saying more important, like it's more important, additional important stuff. Not that it's more important, but some we've got a lot of uh, a lot more ground to cover that I want to make sure we at least touch on. So the next paragraph, 16 through 18, is about fasting. And I'm also going to skip over that because the principle is the same. We're not supposed to do it for people. We are supposed to do it for God. We should not be out there wailing and telling people how hungry we are. We should allow instead that the Lord sees that we are making that sacrifice, that it be unto him. Um, and then we will pick it back up in verse 19. Again, we're in Matthew 6. And I'll read verses 19 through 21 and then verse 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay, you may have heard that. The part I skipped over, again, it's just going to require a little too much explanation that I don't know that we have 100% time for this eye of the lamp of the body portion. So I'm just having to pick and choose again, not trying to say one is more important than the other. This is the direction I'm going. So hope you're along for the ride. But after we discuss this thing about fasting, we see some instruction on where our treasure is. I don't know if when you were a kid, you ever hoped that one day you would stumble either upon a map leading to buried treasure, or maybe you just find the treasure on its own, right? Treasure is kind of this mystical idea, especially when we're young. As we get older, we recognize like, oh, wait, there's not just like buried treasure places, really. Uh, I remember one time when me and my friend were working for buried treasure, we saw like a hollowed out log. And uh, we believed that one at some point it had been a, like a cannon. Um, uh, maybe the education system failed us. Maybe we were just too young to know that, wait, you can't uh, explode gunpowder in a dead tree trunk, but what have you, you know, we were kids, we were having a good time. So anyway, in contrast to a worldly ideal of building up possessions for ourselves here on earth, we are encouraged to lay up treasures in heaven. Okay. So this isn't some way of saying like, save your treasures to the cloud or something. So what does it mean? Well, I don't think we can separate this from the three times in this chapter that Jesus says the Father will reward you when giving as unto the Lord, when praying as unto the Lord, when fasting as unto the Lord, instead of for the praise of people. Okay, that's why he says the Father who sees you in secret will reward you. So we can't separate this idea of this treasure, this heavenly treasure, and this promise to be rewarded. Okay, you can't separate it. 
A treasure which is in heaven is one that is given by God instead of people. Okay, remember the people who are, if we're doing things for people's attention, we have our reward. It's over. Like whatever praise we got from people, that was our reward. Congrats. Consolation prize, not even really a consolation prize, not even that good. Okay, but to store treasure in heaven is to have an eternally minded, spiritual God honoring heart and practice. That's what it means to store treasure in heaven. When we operate out of a desire to please God instead of please people, that is how we store treasure in heaven. What is treasure in heaven? What does reward mean? I know you are dying to know. I don't, I don't know. Ooh, I don't think we'll really understand what that means until we get to those heavenly rewards. Now, Here's a, I'll just give you a couple, a couple little tidbits. Take them, take them how you will. You'll hear people say sometimes jewels in your crown, more crowns in heaven. A lot of times people are just kind of saying that jokingly, right? There is uh, some scriptural pointing, especially about the crowns portion. Uh, in James, it talks about um, those who do right will get a crown of life. First Peter, there's a crown of glory. Um, again, most times where people talk about that, speaking jokingly. Revelation 4, there's a scene where these 24 elders are laying their crowns before Jesus in gratitude. But are, are, are the three crowns that James talks about and that Peter talked about and that John talked about, are they even the same crowns? We, we can't be 100% sure. Okay. Again, these are just some crumbs that give us some clues. Okay. Nothing definitive here. Uh, but here's kind of my two final thoughts on that. One, we are told here and in other places that we will be rewarded. So we can bank on it. It's done. We got it. He says, your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Okay. I was told that three times just in this chapter. Um, okay. I hear, I hear that, Jesus, and I'll, I'll bank it because you said. Okay. What does it mean? I don't know. And I'm okay with it. Okay. But second, we know that living a life that is meant to please God instead of people is what we're called to. Okay. Whether we know exactly what it means to be rewarded, to receive a crown, what have you, whether we know what exactly what that means, we've been given instruction from God to aim for. So that's a good enough reason to do it. Okay. We don't need to know like, oh, is it going to be X, Y, Z? We don't need to know what X, Y, Z is to know, wait, God said, this is the way that I'm called to live. That's good enough for me. Right. Okay. I wish I had more answers for you, but um, it's, it's one of those things that all the different attempts we have to explain it will come, nothing, nothing will come close to the actual experience that it will be. So I'm just putting it in that category and I can live with it. I hope you can too. So let's finish with then this passage at the end of the chapter where Jesus addresses worry and anxiety. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Okay. just want to let, let that soak in a little. Because if you're like me, you read this, and there's a, I feel like there's a, lot of, there's a lot of feelings that come up. Okay. One of those feelings I would say for me is this kind of uh, what I would say is an unhealthy kind of shame. Like, oh man, I'm, I am anxious about these things. Oh, Jesus is so mad at me. He told me not to, and I do it anyways. How can I do that? And then you got to measure that too with the, wow, what is, what is Jesus communicating to me? He's communicating to me how much the father loves me. He's communicating how valuable I am. He's communicating how much he desires to take care of me and is capable to take care of me. Okay, because here's the deal. Jesus is telling us there is no need to be anxious. It doesn't help us, and God has us. Okay, he talks about the worries, specifically the ones he goes into are worries about nourishment and worries about clothing. Okay, kind of these like basic human needs, right? Nourishment, thinking food and water, he uses the birds as an example. Okay, he says they don't toil, but God feeds them. And we are more valuable than birds. If you know me at all, you know that I feel that way more than most, that I am more valuable than a bird. I'm not a big fan of birds. Okay, they scare me. They can fly. They have an aerial advantage over me. I don't like it. But if God takes care of the lesser, then of course he takes care of the greater. The, who's the greater? That's us. We are of more value than birds. He takes care of birds. Birds are worth whatever. He takes care. We are worth infinitely more so he will take care of us that's that's really what jesus is communicating same for clothing he clothes the fields of grass with beautiful flowers more beautiful than anything we could create but we are more valuable than a field of grass same deal he takes care of the grass he's going to take care of us and we are encouraged instead not to try to gather those things for ourselves but to seek the things of god now a couple of things first there's an obvious tension here right Am I supposed to sit around in a field of grass and wait to be clothed or hang out with some birds and wait to be fed? Like, what, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to sit around and wait for these things? If I lose everything, should I just sit in the field? The tension is knowing God will provide while also knowing there are things that we're called to do for work and provision, right? We're not ultimately called to just sit and wait. So there's a tension here. And I think this is where many of us find ourselves looking for that sweet spot of trust and action and then anxiety is kind of just like clouding that whole thing, right? So what we don't get here is what the sweet spot is. We don't get the sweet spot. You need to do this much and not this much, right? There's a tension that those of us who tend toward anxiety, I have a tendency in me, you may have that in you, we have to live in attention. That's how we're called to live. That's, that's also just part of generally our spiritual life. We live in tensions, right? All we can hope is that we get a little closer to that balance, to that sweet spot between trust and action through the work of the Spirit in our lives. That's really all we can hope for. Because again, we're not given, oh, hey, this is what the sweet spot is. Now, I want to also offer a little bit of a word on anxiety, because this passage is uh, sometimes weaponized as a demand by Jesus that we not be anxious. The morality piece morality peace morality police want to be on your doorstep the moment they sense a bead of sweat and i really just don't read this passage that way 
in the previous paragraphs that we saw, we are given a clear right and wrong, do this, which is do things as unto the Lord, not that, which is do things unto people. And this passage has such a comforting, nurturing tone to it. I also want to mention the word for anxiety here um, refers to being overly concerned with something, more concerned about something than you should be, okay? And we see it multiple times in this passage. There's a parallel passage to this one in Luke 12, so we see it a bunch there. There's a passage and its parallel about the disciples. Jesus is telling the disciples, don't be anxious about what you'll say when you are brought and questioned, okay? And in Philippians, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God, okay? The final one, carrying this definition for it, there's some other just kind of generally more like care, like kind of more inappropriate care. The final one carrying this definition is when Jesus tells Martha she's too distracted, right? If Mary and Martha, everybody's familiar, right? He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Not exactly a rebuke, right? He is correcting Martha. But again, since that tone, Martha, Martha, right? What I think here Jesus is doing is not pointing out primarily a sin for us to avoid. He is giving us a healthy, heavenly perspective and encouraging us that there is not a need to be anxious. Here's how I like it. Don't, there's no need to worry. I love you so much. That's what I, that's what I read in this passage. Anxiety absolutely can be sin. Sometimes it leads to self-sufficiency, to control, to unbalanced people-pleasing, to manipulation, right? These are ways that we see sometimes anxiety play, in, play out, and all of those things in an unhealthy way are sinful, right? I will have to apologize for the change in audio here. My mic gave out on me right as I was finishing that last sentence. So I will have to continue with my computer mic, so apologies. But we were saying that anxiety can lead to sin, but I don't think we need to be afraid that the very moment that we start feeling anxiety, that we are experiencing sin. For example, anxiety is rooted in fear, right? Ultimately, that's kind of, it's an outpouring of fear. If a boulder's coming at you and you feel afraid, that's part of your body getting you ready to go into action, right? To take the steps necessary to avoid said boulder, heightening your senses. So I don't think we need to think that the moment I start to feel anxiety is a moment where I'm sinning. I think it more comes out of how am I dwelling on my anxiety? And I'll give another example from my life just recently. Um, I was in a, a situation where I was feeling a lot of anxiety. And on the one hand, I did feel myself starting to reach for those more sinful desires, self-sufficiency, I can just power through this uh, control. Let me see if I can just work this situation just the way that it'll be uh, the best outcome, right? So I, I saw that anxiety start to drift into sin because I was choosing uh, to operate out of that anxiety in unhealthy ways. But then I think there were other times where I was like, you know what, I'm taking note, my heart's racing a little bit, maybe my uh, blood pressure's up a little bit, but I'm also in a place where I can trust the Lord. So I think in those scenarios, we're experiencing uh, an anxiety that we, I was experiencing anxiety that I chose to act out in sinful ways. And then some ways where I just recognize this is happening in my body. I'm recognizing it. I'm doing my best to surrender it. So I share all that. Not so you will think I'm really good at not being anxious because that's not necessarily true. But I do want you to know that I don't want anybody heaping unnecessary guilt on their plate. That's really why I want to talk about it. 
So uh, before we jump into the appendix, I uh, did want to just fill uh, in the gap with some application. We've been talking about some application along the way, but really I could summarize it this way. We are called to live unto the Lord and to trust the Lord's provision. We are not called to live as to others, right? To For the opinions of others, to trust in our own ability to provide for ourselves, but instead with all our actions and the, the righteous things that we pursue because we've been called to it, that we want to do it as if the, uh, sometimes I've heard it say an audience of one, as if only the Lord is watching, not to do it so that other people will heap praise upon us when we do good things, right? And secondly, trusting the Lord for a provision, trusting that even if we do something good and no one notices it, that this reward in heaven, again, what whatever we think that means, whatever it truly means, it doesn't just matter what we think, right? But whatever it will turn out that means is worth it. That's more valuable than the tangible praise we could see now from other people. Again, assuming that that praise is what we're after. It's not wrong to be praised for doing something in a good heart, right? So that's all for today. And I hope that going through this passage, we can have a chance to just introspect and look at our lives and say, where am I living under the Lord? And where maybe am I like really thriving on people's approval? Where am I seeking control? Where am I seeking manipulation, people pleasing in response to my anxiety? And when can I rest and just know that the Lord is God because he does desire to take care of us. He will take care of his people and we can trust he's going to do it every time. Welcome everyone to the second ever now Bible Breakdown Appendix, where we tackle something that maybe we didn't quite have enough time for in the main one, in the main body of the Bible Breakdown. But in case you are interested in continuing to listen, here you go. You've got that opportunity. Again, want to apologize if you heard the end of the episode. I'm working with my backup mic right now, so apologize the audio is a little off. But what I wanted to tackle for this appendix is these two verses in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, that I think give us some pause, like, whoa, that's that's a lot. So I want us to help process that, um, look for the truth in that, and explain what I think Jesus is trying to tell us here. So what verses 14 and 15 say are this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, so the reason I think it's important for us to talk about is we could easily be like, oh no, I am currently feeling a little bit begrudged towards somebody, maybe one of my family members. I feel like family members are the easiest to hold grudges against, right? Though if you have a grudge against somebody else, then that's that's fine too, I guess. Not that we should be having grudges. That's kind of the opposite of the point here. But you may be tempted to think, oh man, I'm holding this grudge against this person. I am now no longer forgiven. Okay, that could be the temptation. Okay, and I think when we say something like that, we can see, okay, I, I feel like that isn't true. But then I read this verse and it kind of is like, am I just trying to rationalize it or, you know, how is it? So that's why I'm here. I'm hope, So that you cannot, you can feel like, yeah, I don't think that's true. And then you can feel at least with a reasonable amount of confidence like, oh, and yes, I, I understand now what that's saying. So two things here I want to mention. First, I want to compare this to confession. Okay. So in First uh, John um, 1, 8 through 9, I believe, First John 1, 9. 
It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so that's one thing that John says in one of his epistles. Okay, and so we think, okay, so the, the again, the temptation there could be, okay, so if I confess it, I'm forgiven. But say I've sinned and I forgot about it and I didn't get a chance to confess it, then maybe I'm not forgiven. Okay. So I think with both of these things, so the confession and then forgiveness as well, we do have to take, I think, a, a larger view. Okay. So I do not think that if we sin and do not individually confess each of them, that we will not be purified from unrighteousness as if somehow that makes us no longer children of God. Right. Because the reality is we are going to sin in ways that in the moment we are not fully cognizant of. That's just, that's just the truth. And there's other things that we will be cognizant of. We will maybe just kind of, you know, try to move past it and we will forget. Okay. That's part of the human condition. Okay. That's not an uh, extraordinary rebellious Christian thing, right? That's just part of being a human on this side of heaven is we're not perfect. So sometimes we say, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I know that was wrong, but I'm not about to confess this. I'm not about to apologize. And then eventually we can be really good at forgetting those bad things we've done. Right. I don't think that. We could think something as simple as forgetting something wrong we've done could then just totally eliminate uh, the work of Jesus. And in some ways, I think to to believe that if, oh, if we missed like one confessing one sin, then Jesus no longer forgives me. It kind of cheapens what Jesus did a little bit. Now, we have to hold that again. There's a tension to say, yeah, okay, I'm not required to confess every single sin in order to still have that forgiveness. That forgiveness is freely given as a gift. We are called to confess because that is an ideal of the kingdom. That when we do wrong, we confess. That it's, we ask, uh, we we make reconciliation where possible, right? We confess uh, to the Lord, to others when appropriate. Um, David says in one of the Psalms, "Against you and you only have I sinned," knowing that any sin, even when it uh, has the collateral damage of people, which it often does, the ultimately we've sinned against our Creator. Primarily, we've also sinned against one another. So I think it's always appropriate when we are aware of sin in our lives that we can reconcile with people. We can confess sins to trusted people. We should always confess the sins, our sins to the Lord because that's a, a healthy practice, a kingdom value is to admit that we make mistakes and ask for forgiveness. That's a kingdom value. So I don't want to cheapen that either. But again, to say that we have to remember every time we've sinned and confess that in order to receive forgiveness is kind of more like a, a vending machine, right? So I say all that about the first John 1 9 passage. So that I think it's a very similar thing here. Okay. A heart that is unwilling to forgive others is not a heart that is aligned with the heart of the Father. If you were to say, Yes, I am uh, I'm a Christian, man, God has forgiven me. Um, and I I'm so glad he's forgiven me, but I'm not about to forgive anyone else. That is not that is not a heart that has really been truly surrendered to the Lord, right? That is a, a heart that thinks kind of like, oh, I'm a special case. I'm a special case that I deserve God's forgiveness, but other people, I'm too, I'm too good. They don't deserve my forgiveness. You see the obvious logical flaw there to say, God is the best and he should forgive me, but I'm too good to forgive other people, right? So I think what is being communicated here in verses 14 and 15 is this, uh, this kingdom value, but also kind of this in some ways like a, a truly repentant heart recognizes the need for forgiveness and also recognizes the need to extend forgiveness to others. Okay. So again, it's not a one for one. 
Like if you've got, if you're thinking right now, like, oh, this is a person I'm mad at. I've not forgiven them in my heart. That now the forgiveness that you have in Christ, if you're a believer, is now null and void. That is not, I do not believe that is true. Because again, we are, uh, we are flawed humans and we still have sin in our lives. So we can recognize that and say, yeah, hmm, this is an ideal of the kingdom that and a, a heart that is truly repentant, a heart that is truly aligned with the Lord says, I need to forgive others. But then sometimes it takes us a minute to get there, right? We also have to recognize that sometimes forgiveness is a process because sometimes people have done really horrible things. And it's okay to admit that, yeah, I'm having trouble forgiving them. It's, I think when we're pursuing that desire to forgive, that's a heart that is aligned with the heart of the Lord. That's a heart that is one that shows a person who has truly understood the forgiveness that we have received from God for our sins. When we are like, I, I know I'm not there yet, but that's where I want to get. I want to get to a place of forgiveness. That's a heart that even if we haven't completed the transaction of saying, yes, I feel like I've fully forgiven someone, a heart that is turned toward forgiving others is, I think, what God is looking for, a kingdom value, as I'd say, because that's what we've been talking about here in the Sermon on the Mountain, chapters five and six, is these are values of God's kingdom and how there are ways that we can emulate what God would call us to do as people who are a part of his kingdom. So I hope that is helpful in uh, explaining that. Um, and I, I hope too, like that it, if there is something that came to mind, whether on my little aside, talking about confession of sin or this one about forgiveness, I hope there's something that's coming to mind for you too, that you can open up in transparency about to yourself, to somebody else that you can kind of just shine some light on that and say, yeah, I, I do have sin. I need to confess. I do have people I need to forgive and that we can all be on that road toward, um, not only, uh, doing the right thing, but recognizing when we're not doing the right thing to correct it and have a heart of repentance, because that's all we can do. That's all we can do because we're going to mess up. We're not going to do it perfectly. But luckily, God has lavished through Jesus Christ grace upon grace, so that even in our frailty, our weakness, that he still loves us and we can still be absolutely 100% confident. We do not have to wonder. We have been given a uh, just this incredible promise that we can be children of God. We don't get go in and out of the family. We can rest in that promise that we remain children of God, even in the midst of our struggles.